Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected, Edgar Allan Poe. Recording by Marmalade Hanna. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 21. As soon as I could collect my scattered senses, I found myself nearly suffocated and groveling in utter darkness among a quantity of loose earth, which was also falling upon me heavily in every direction, threatening to bury me entirely. Horribly alarmed at this idea, I struggled to gain my feet and at last succeeded. I then remained motionless for some moments, endeavoring to conceive what had happened to me and where I was. Presently I heard a deep groan just at my ear, and afterward the smothered voice of Peters calling to me for aid in the name of God. I scrambled one or two paces forward when I fell directly over the head and shoulders of my companion, who I soon discovered was buried in a loose mass of earth as far as his middle and struggling desperately to free himself from the pressure. I tore the dirt from around him with all the energy I could command, and at length succeeded in getting him out. 
As soon as we sufficiently recovered from our fright and surprise to be capable of conversing rationally, we both came to the conclusion that the walls of the fissure in which we had ventured had, by some convulsion of nature, or probably from their own weight, caved in overhead, and that we were consequently lost forever, being thus entombed alive. For a long time we gave up supinely to the most intense agony and despair, such as cannot be adequately imagined by those who have never been in a similar position. I firmly believed that no incident ever occurring in the course of human events is more adapted to aspire the supremeness of mental and bodily distress than a case like our own, of living inhumation. The blackness of darkness which envelopes the victim, the terrific oppression of lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, unite with the ghastly considerations that we are beyond the remotest confines of hope and that such is the allotted portion of the dead, to carry into the human heart a degree of appalling awe and horror not to be tolerated, never to be conceived. At length Peters proposed that we should endeavor to ascertain precisely the extent of our calamity and grope about our prison. It being barely possible, he observed, that some opening might yet be left us for escape. I caught eagerly at this hope, and, arousing myself to exertion, attempted to force my way through the loose earth. Hardly had I advanced a single step before a glimmer of light became perceptible, enough to convince me that, at all events, we should not immediately perish for want of air. We now took some degree of heart and encouraged each other to hope for the best. Having scrambled over a bank of rubbish which impeded our farther progress in the direction of the light, we found less difficulty in advancing and also experienced some relief from the excessive oppression of lungs which had tormented us. Presently we were enabled to obtain a glimpse of the objects around and discovered that we were near the extremity of the straight portion of the fissure where it made a turn to the left. A few struggles more, and we reached the bend, when, to our inexpressible joy, there appeared a long seam or crack extending upward a vast distance, generally at an angle of about 45 degrees, although sometimes much more precipitous. We could not see through the whole extent of this opening, but, as a good deal of light came down it, we had little doubt of finding at the top of it, if we could by any means reach the top, a clear passage into the open air. I now called to mind that three of us had entered the fissure from the main gorge, and that our companion Alan was still missing. We determined at once to retrace our steps and look for him. After a long search and much danger from the farther caving in of the earth above us, Peters at length cried out to me that he had hold of our companion's foot, and that his whole body was deeply buried beneath the rubbish beyond the possibility of extricating him. I soon found that what he said was too true, and that, of course, life had been long extinct. With sorrowful hearts, therefore, we left the corpse to its fate, and again made our way to the bend. The breadth of the seam was barely sufficient to admit us, and, after one or two ineffectual efforts at getting up, we began once more to despair. 
I have before said that the chain of hills through which ran the main gorge was composed of a species of soft rock resembling soapstone. The sides of the cleft we were now attempting to ascend were of the same material, and so excessively slippery, being wet, that we could get but little foothold upon them even in their least precipitous parts. In some places, where the ascent was nearly perpendicular, the difficulty was, of course, much aggravated, and indeed, for some time we thought insurmountable. We took courage, however, from despair and what, by dint of cutting steps in the soft stone with our bowie knives, and swinging at the risk of our lives to small projecting points of a harder species of slaty rock, which now and then protruded from the general mass, we at length reached a natural platform from which was perceptible a patch of blue sky at the extremity of a thickly wooded ravine. Looking back now with somewhat more leisure at the passage through which we had thus far proceeded, we clearly saw from the appearance of its sides that it was of late formation, and we concluded that the concussion, whatever it was, which had so unexpectedly overwhelmed us, had also, at the same moment, laid open this path for escape. Being quite exhausted with exertion, and indeed so weak that we were scarcely able to stand or articulate, Peters now proposed that we should endeavor to bring our companions to the rescue by firing the pistols which still remained in our girdles. The muskets, as well as cutlasses, had been lost among the loose earth at the bottom of the chasm. Subsequent events proved that, had we fired, we should have sorely repented it, but luckily a half-suspicion of foul play had by this time arisen in my mind, and we forbore to let the savages know of our whereabouts. After having reposed for about an hour, we pushed on slowly up the ravine, and had gone no great way before we heard a succession of tremendous yells. At length we reached what might be called the surface of the ground, for our path hitherto, since leaving the platform, had lain beneath an archway of high rock and foliage at a vast distance overhead. With great caution we stole to a narrow opening, through which we had a clear sight of the surrounding country, when the whole dreadful secret of the concussion broke upon us in one moment and at one view. The spot from which we looked was not far from the summit of the highest peak in the range of the soapstone hills. The gorge in which our party of thirty-two had entered ran fifty feet to the left of us, but, for at least one hundred yards, the channel or bed of this gorge was entirely filled up with the chaotic ruins of more than a million tons of earth and stone that had been artificially tumbled within it. The means by which the vast mass had been precipitated were not more simple than evident, for sure traces of the murderous work were yet remaining. In several spots along the top of the eastern side of the gorge, we were now on the western, might be seen stakes of wood driven into the earth. In these spots, the earth had not given way, but throughout the whole extent of the face of the precipice from which the mass had fallen, it was clear from marks left in the soil resembling those made by the drill of the rock blaster that stakes similar to those we saw standing had been inserted at not more than a yard apart for the length of perhaps 
300 feet and ranging at about 10 feet back from the edge of the gulf. Strong cords of grapevine were attached to the stakes still remaining on the hill, and it was evident that such cords had also been attached to each of the other stakes. I have already spoken of the singular stratification of these soapstone hills, and the description just given of the narrow and deep fissure through which we effected our escape from inhumation will afford a further conception of its nature. This was such that almost every natural convulsion would be sure to split the soil into perpendicular layers or ridges running parallel with one another, and a very moderate exertion of art would be sufficient for effecting the same purpose. Of this stratification, the savages had availed themselves to accomplish their treacherous ends. There can be no doubt that, by the continuous lines of stakes, a partial rupture of the soil had been brought about probably to the depth of one or two feet, when by means of a savage pulling at the end of each of the cords, these cords being attached to the tops of the stakes and extending back from the edge of the cliff, a vast leverage power was obtained, capable of hurling the whole face of the hill, upon a given signal, into the bosom of the abyss below. The fate of our poor companions was no longer a matter of uncertainty, we alone had escaped from the tempest of that overwhelming destruction. We were the only living white men upon the island. End of section 21. Recording by Marmalade Hanna, Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 22 Our situation, as it now appeared, was scarcely less dreadful than when we had conceived ourselves entombed forever. We saw before us no prospect but that of being put to death by the savages, or of dragging out a miserable existence in captivity among them. We might, to be sure, conceal ourselves for a time from their observation among the fastnesses of the hills, and as a final resort in the chasm from which we had just issued, but we must either perish in the long polar winter through cold and famine, or be ultimately discovered in our efforts to obtain relief. The whole country around us seemed to be swarming with savages, crowds of whom we now perceived had come over from the islands to the southward on flat rafts doubtless with a view of lending their aid in the capture and plunder of the jane the vessel still lay calmly at anchor in the bay those on board apparently quite unconscious of any danger awaiting them how we longed at that moment to be with them either to aid in effecting their escape or to perish with them in attempting a defence we saw no chance even of warning them of their danger without bringing immediate destruction upon our own heads with but a remote hope of benefit to them. A pistol fired might suffice to apprise them that something wrong had occurred, but the report could not possibly inform them that their only prospect of safety lay in getting out of the harbor forthwith. It could not tell them that no principles of honor now bound them to remain, that their companions were no longer among the living. Upon hearing the discharge, they could not be more thoroughly prepared to meet the foe, who were now getting ready to attack, than they already were, and always had been. No good, therefore, and infinite harm would result, 
from our firing, and after mature deliberation we forbore. Our next thought was to attempt to rush toward the vessel, to seize one of the four canoes which lay at the head of the bay, and endeavor to force a passage on board. But the utter impossibility of succeeding in this desperate task soon became evident. The country, as I said before, was literally swarming with the natives, skulking among the bushes and recesses of the hills, so as not to be observed from the schooner. In our immediate vicinity especially, and blockading the sole path by which we could hope to attain the shore, at the proper point were stationed the whole party of the black-skinned warriors, with Tewit at their head, and apparently only waiting for some reinforcements to commence his onset upon the Jane. The canoes, too, which lay at the head of the bay, were manned with savages, unarmed, it is true, but who undoubtedly had arms within reach. We were forced, therefore, however unwillingly, to remain in our place of concealment, mere spectators of the conflict which presently ensued. In about half an hour we saw some sixty or seventy rafts or flatboats without riggers, filled with savages, and coming round the southern bight of the harbour. They appeared to have no arms except short clubs and stones which lay in the bottom of the rafts. Immediately afterward another detachment, still larger, appeared in the opposite direction, and with similar weapons. The four canoes, too, were now quickly filled with natives, starting up from the bushes at the head of the bay, and put off swiftly to join the other parties. Thus, in less time than I've taken to tell it, and as if by magic, the Jane saw herself surrounded by an immense multitude of desperadoes evidently bent upon capturing her at all hazards. That they would succeed in so doing could not be doubted for an instant. The six men left in the vessel, however resolutely they might engage in her defense, were altogether unequal to the proper management of the guns, or in any manner to sustain a contest at such odds. I could hardly imagine they would make any resistance at all, but in this I was deceived, for presently I saw them get springs upon the cable, and bring the vessel's starboard broadside to bear upon the canoes, which by this time were within pistol range. The rafts, being nearly a quarter of a mile to windward, owing to some cause unknown, but most probably to the agitation of our poor friends at seeing themselves in so hopeless a situation. The discharge was an entire failure. Not a canoe was hit, or a single savage injured, the shots striking short and ricocheting over their heads. The only effect produced upon them was astonishment at the unexpected report and smoke, which was so excessive that for some moments I almost thought they would abandon their design entirely and return to the shore. And this they would most likely have done, had our men followed up their broadside by a discharge of small arms in which, as the canoes were now so near at hand, they could not have failed in doing some execution. Sufficient, at least, to deter this party from a farther advance, until they could have given the rafts also a broadside. But in place of this, they left the canoe party to recover from their panic, and by looking about them to see that no injury had been sustained, while they flew to the larboard to get ready for the rafts. The discharge to larboard produced the most terrible effect. The star and double-headed shot of the large guns cut seven or eight of the rafts completely asunder, and killed perhaps thirty or forty of the savages, outright, while a hundred of them at least were thrown into the water, the most of them dreadfully wounded. The remainder, frightened out of their senses, 
commenced at once a precipitate retreat, not even waiting to pick up their maimed companions, who were swimming about in every direction, screaming and yelling for aid. This great success, however, came too late for the salvation of our devoted people. The canoe party were already on board the schooner to the number of more than a hundred and fifty, the most of them having succeeded in scrambling up the chains and over the boarding netting even before the matches had been applied to the larboard guns. Nothing now could withstand their brute rage. Our men were borne down at once, overwhelmed, trodden underfoot, and absolutely torn to pieces in an instant. Seeing this, the savages on the rafts got the better of their fears, and came up in shoals to the plunder. In five minutes the Jane was a pitiable scene indeed of havoc and tumultuous outrage. The decks were split open and ripped up. The cordage, sails, and everything movable on deck demolished as if by magic, while by dint of pushing at the stern, and towing with the canoes, and hauling at the sides as they swam in thousands around the vessel, the wretches finally forced her on shore, the cable having been slipped, and delivered her over to the good offices of Tewit, who, during the whole of the engagement, had maintained like a skilful general his post of security and reconnaissance among the hills. But now that the victory was completed to his satisfaction, condescended to scamper down with his warriors of the black skin, and become a partaker in the spoils. To its descent left us at liberty to quit our hiding-place, and reconnoitre the hill in the vicinity of the chasm. At about fifty yards from the mouth of it we saw a small spring of water, at which we slaked the burning thirst that now consumed us. Not far from the spring we discovered several of the filbert bushes which I mentioned before. Upon tasting the nuts we found them palatable, and very nearly resembling in flavour the common English filbert. We collected our hats full immediately, deposited them within the ravine, and returned for more. While we were busily employed in gathering these, a rustling in the bushes alarmed us, and we were upon the point of stealing back to our covert, when a large black bird of the bittern species, strugglingly and slowly, rose above the shrubs. I was so much startled that I could do nothing, but Peters had sufficient presence of mind to run up to it before it could make its escape, and seize it by the neck. Its struggles and screams were tremendous, and we had thoughts of letting it go, lest the noise should alarm some of the savages who might be still lurking in the neighborhood. A stab with a bowie-knife, however, at length brought it to the ground, and we dragged it into the ravine, congratulating ourselves that, at all events, we had thus obtained a supply of food, enough to last us for a week. We now went out again to look about us, and ventured a considerable distance down the southern declivity of the hill, but met with nothing else which could serve us for food. We therefore collected a quantity of dry wood, and returned, seeing one or two large parties of the natives on their way to the village, laden with the plunder of the vessel, and who, we were apprehensive, might discover us in passing beneath the hill. Our next care was to render our place of concealment as secure as possible, and with this object we arranged some brushwood over the aperture which I have before spoken of as the one through which we saw the patch of blue sky. On reaching the platform from the interior from the chasm, we left only a very small opening just wide enough to admit of our seeing the bay, without the risk of being discovered from below. Having done this, we congratulated ourselves upon the security of the position, for we were now completely excluded from observation, 
as long as we chose to remain within the ravine itself and not venture out upon the hill. We could perceive no traces of the savages having ever been within this hollow, but indeed, when we came to reflect upon the probability that the fissure through which we attained it had been only just now created by the fall of the cliff opposite, and that no other way of attaining it could be perceived, we were not so much rejoiced at the thought of being secure from molestation as fearful lest there should be absolutely no means left us for descent. We resolved to explore the summit of the hill thoroughly, when a good opportunity should offer. In the meantime, we watched the motions of the savages through our loophole. They had already made a complete wreck of the vessel, and were now preparing to set her on fire. In a little while, we saw the smoke ascending in huge volumes from her main hatchway and shortly afterward a dense mass of flame burst up from the forecastle. The rigging, masts, and what remained of the sails caught immediately, and the fire spread rapidly along the decks. Still a great many of the savages retained their stations about her, hammering with large stones, axes, and cannon-balls at the bolts and other iron and copper work. On the beach, and in canoes and rafts, there were not less altogether in the immediate vicinity of the schooner than ten thousand natives, besides the shoals of them, who, laden with booty, were making their way inland and over to the neighboring islands, we now anticipated a catastrophe, and were not disappointed. First of all, there came a smart shock, which we felt as distinctly where we were as if we had been slightly galvanized, but unattended with any visible sign of an explosion. The savages were evidently startled, and paused for an instant from their labors and yellings, and they were upon the point of recommencing, when suddenly a mass of smoke puffed up from the decks, resembling a black and heavy thundercloud. Then, as if from its bowels, arose a tall stream of vivid fire, to the height apparently of a quarter of a mile. Then there came a sudden circular expansion of the flame, and then the whole atmosphere was magically crowded in a single instant with a wild chaos of wood, metal, and human limbs, and lastly came the concussion in its fullest fury, which hurled us impetuously from our feet, while the hills echoed and re-echoed the tumult, and a dense shower of the minutest fragments of the ruins tumbled headlong in every direction around us. The havoc among the savages far exceeded our utmost expectation, and they had now indeed reaped the full and perfect fruits of their treachery. Perhaps a thousand perished by the explosion, while at least an equal number were desperately mangled. The whole surface of the bay was literally strewn with the struggling and drowning wretches, and on shore matters were even worse. They seemed utterly appalled by the suddenness and completeness of their discomfiture, and made no efforts at assisting one another. At length we observed a total change in their demeanor. From absolute stupor, they appeared to be all at once aroused to the highest pitch of excitement, and rushed wildly about, going to and fro from a certain point on the beach, with the strangest expressions of mingled horror, rage, and intense curiosity depicted on their countenances, and shouting at the top of their lungs, Tekalili! Tekalili! Presently we saw a large body go off into the hills, and whence they returned in a short time, carrying stakes of wood. These they brought to the station where the crowd was the thickest, which now separated so as to afford us a view of the object of all the excitement. 
we perceived something white lying upon the ground, but could not immediately make out what it was. At length we saw that it was the carcass of the strange animal with the scarlet teeth and claws which the schooner had picked up at sea on the 18th of January. Captain Guy had had the body preserved for the purpose of stuffing the skin and taking it to England. I remember he had given some directions about it just before our making the island, and it had been brought into the cabin and stowed away in one of its lockers. It had now been thrown on shore by the explosion, but why had it occasioned so much concern among the savages was more than we could comprehend. Although they crowded around the carcass at a little distance, none of them seemed willing to approach it closely. By and by the men with the stakes drove them in a circle around it, and no sooner was this arrangement completed than the whole of the vast assemblage rushed into the interior of the island with loud screams of Tekalili, Tekalili. End of section 22. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 23. During the six or seven days immediately following, we remained in our hiding place upon the hill, going out only occasionally, and then with the greatest precaution for water and filberts. We had made a kind of penthouse on the platform, furnishing it with a bed of dry leaves, and placing in it three large flat stones, which served us for both fireplace and table. We kindled the fire without difficulty, by rubbing two pieces of dry wood together, the one soft, the other hard. The bird we had taken in such good season proved excellent eating, although somewhat tough. It was not an oceanic fowl, but a species of bittern with jet-black and grisly plumage and diminutive wings in proportion to its bulk. We afterwards saw three of the same kind in the vicinity of the ravine, apparently seeking for the one we had captured, but as they never alighted, we had no opportunity of catching them. As long as this fowl lasted, we suffered nothing from our situation, but it was now entirely consumed, and it became absolutely necessary that we should look out for provision. The filberts would not satisfy the cravings of hunger, afflicting us too with severe grippings of the bowels, and if freely indulged in, with violent headache. We had seen several large tortoises near the seashore to the eastward of the hill, and perceived they might be easily taken, if we could get at them without the observation of the natives. It was resolved, therefore, to make an attempt at descending. We commenced by going down the southern declivity, which seemed to offer the fewest difficulties, but had not proceeded a hundred yards before, as we had anticipated from appearances on the hilltop, our progress was entirely arrested by a branch of the gorge in which our companions had perished. We now passed along the edge of this for about a quarter of a mile, when we were again stopped by a precipice of immense depth, and not being able to make our way along the brink of it, we were forced to retrace our steps by the main ravine. We now pushed over to the eastward, but with precisely similar fortune. After an hour's scramble at the risk of breaking our necks, we discovered that we had merely descended into a vast pit of black granite, with fine dust at the bottom, and whence the only egress was by the rugged path in which we had come down. Toiling again up this path, we now tried the northern edge of the hill. 
here we were obliged to use the greatest possible caution in our maneuvers as the least indiscretion would expose us to the full view of the savages in the village we crawled along therefore on our hands and knees and occasionally were even forced to throw ourselves at full length dragging our bodies along by means of the shrubbery in this careful manner we had proceeded but a little way when we arrived at a chasm far deeper than any we had yet seen and leading directly into the main gorge and thus our fears were fully confirmed and we found ourselves cut off entirely from access to the world below thoroughly exhausted by our exertions we made the best of our way back to the platform and throwing ourselves upon the bed of leaves slept sweetly and soundly for some hours for several days after this fruitless search we were occupied in exploring every part of the summit of the hill in order to inform ourselves of its actual resources we found that it would afford us no food with the exception of the unwholesome filberts and the rank species of scurvy grass which grew in a little patch of not more than four rods square and would be soon exhausted on the 15th of February as near as I can remember there was not a blade of this left and the nuts were growing scarce our situation therefore could hardly be more lamentable on the 16th we again went round the walls of our prison in hopes of finding some avenue of escape but to no purpose we also descended the chasm in which we had been overwhelmed with a faint expectation of discovering through this channel some opening to the main ravine here too we were disappointed although we found and brought up with us a musket on the 17th we set out with the determination of examining more thoroughly the chasm of black granite into which we had made our way in the first search we remembered that one of the fissures in the sides of this pit had been but partially looked into and we were anxious to explore it although with no expectation of discovering here any opening we found no great difficulty in reaching the bottom of the hollow as before and were now sufficiently calm to survey it with some attention it was indeed one of the more singular looking places imaginable and we could scarcely bring ourselves to believe it altogether the work of nature the pit from its eastern to its western extremity was about five hundred yards in length when all its windings were threaded the distance from east to west in a straight line not being more i should suppose having no means of accurate examination than forty or fifty yards upon first descending into the chasm that is to say for a hundred feet downward from the summit of the hill the sides of the abyss bore little resemblance to each other and apparently had at no time been connected the one surface being of the soapstone and the other of marl granulated with some metallic matter the average breadth or interval between the two cliffs was probably here sixty feet but there seemed to be no regularity of formation passing down however beyond the limit spoken of the interval rapidly contracted and the sides began to run parallel although for some distance farther they were still dissimilar in their material and form of surface upon arriving within fifty feet of the bottom a perfect regularity commenced the sides were now entirely uniform in substance in color and in lateral direction the material being a very black and shining granite 
and the distance between the two sides at all points facing each other exactly 20 yards. The precise formation of the chasm will be best understood by means of a delineation taken upon the spot, for I had luckily with me a pocketbook and pencil, which I preserved with great care through a long series of subsequent adventure, and to which I am indebted for memoranda of many subjects which would otherwise have been crowded from my remembrance. This figure gives the general outlines of the chasm, without the minor cavities in the sides, of which there were several, each cavity having a corresponding protuberance opposite. The bottom of the gulf was covered to the depth of three or four inches with a powder almost impalpable, beneath which we found a continuation of the black granite. To the right, at the lower extremity, will be noticed the appearance of a small opening. This is the fissure alluded to above, and to examine which, more minutely than before, was the object of our second visit. We now pushed into it with vigor, cutting away a quantity of brambles which impeded us, and removing a vast heap of sharp flints, somewhat resembling arrowheads in shape. We were encouraged to persevere, however, by perceiving some little light proceeding from the farther end. We at length squeezed our way for about thirty feet, and found that the aperture was a low and regularly formed arch, having a bottom of the same impalpable powder as that in the main chasm. A strong light now broke upon us, and turning a short bend we found ourselves in another lofty chamber, similar to the one we had left in every respect but longitudinal form. Its general figure is here given. The total length of this chasm, commencing at the opening A, and proceeding round the curve B to the extremity D, is 550 yards. At E we discovered a small aperture, similar to the one through which we had issued from the other chasm, and this was choked up in the same manner with brambles and a quantity of the white arrowhead flints. We forced our way through it, finding it about forty feet long, and emerged into a third chasm. This too was precisely like the first, except in its longitudinal shape, which was thus. We found the entire length of the third chasm three hundred and twenty yards. At the point A was an opening about six feet wide, and extending fifteen feet into the rock, where it terminated in a bed of marl, there being no other chasm beyond as we had expected. We were about leaving this fissure, into which very little light was admitted, when Peters called my attention to a range of singular-looking indentures in the surface of the marl forming the termination of the cul-de-sac. With a very slight exertion of the imagination, the left or most northern of these indentures might have been taken for the intentional, although rude, representation of a human figure standing erect with outstretched arm. The rest of them bore also some little resemblance to alphabetical characters, and Peters was willing at all events to adopt the idle opinion that they were really such. I convinced him of his error finally by directing his attention to the floor of the fissure, where among the powder we picked up piece by piece several large flakes of the marl which had evidently been broken off by some convulsion from the surface where the indentures were found and which had projecting points exactly fitting the indentures, thus proving them to have been the work of nature. After satisfying ourselves that these singular caverns afforded us no means of escape from our prison, we made our way back, dejected and dispirited, to the summit of the hill, 
nothing worth mentioning occurred during the next twenty-four hours except that in examining the ground to the eastward of the third chasm we found two triangular holes of great depth and also with black granite sides into these holes we did not think it worth while to attempt descending as they had the appearance of mere natural wells without outlet they were each raven edition volume three by edgar allan poe chapter twenty four on the twentieth of the month finding it altogether impossible to subsist any longer upon the filberts the use of which occasioned us the most excruciating torment we resolved to make a desperate attempt at descending the southern declivity of the hill the face of the precipice was here of the softest species of soapstone although nearly perpendicular throughout its whole extent a depth of a hundred and fifty feet at the least and in many places even overarching after a long search we discovered a narrow ledge about twenty feet below the brink of the gulf upon this peters contrived to leap with what assistance i could render him by means of our pocket handkerchiefs tied together with somewhat more difficulty i also got down and we then saw the possibility of descending the whole way by the process in which we had clambered up from the chasm when we had been buried by the fall of the hill that is by cutting steps in the face of the soapstone with our knives the extreme hazard of the attempt can scarcely be conceived but as there was no other resource we determined to undertake it upon the ledge where we stood there grew some filbert bushes and to one of these we made fast an end of our rope of handkerchiefs. The other end being tied round Peter's waist, I lowered him down over the edge of the precipice until the handkerchiefs were stretched tight. He now proceeded to dig a deep hole in the soapstone, as far in as eight or ten inches, sloping away the rock above to the height of a foot or thereabout, so as to allow of his driving, with the butt of a pistol, a tolerably strong peg into the leveled surface. I then drew him up for about four feet, when he made a hole similar to the one below, driving in a peg as before, and having thus a resting place for both feet and hands. I now unfastened the handkerchiefs from the bush, throwing him the end, which he tied to the peg in the uppermost hole, letting himself down gently to a station about three feet lower than he had yet been, that is, to the full extent of the handkerchiefs. Here he dug another hole, and drove another peg. He then drew himself up so as to rest his feet in the hole just cut, taking hold with his hands upon the peg in the one above. It was now necessary to untie the handkerchiefs from the topmost peg, with the view of fastening them to the second, and here he found that an error had been committed in cutting the holes at so great a distance apart. However, after one or two unsuccessful and dangerous attempts at reaching the knot, having to hold on with his left hand while he labored to undo the fastening with his right. He at length cut the string, leaving six inches of it affixed to the peg. Tying the handkerchiefs now to the second peg, he descended to a station below the third, taking care not to go too far down. By these means, means which I should never have conceived of myself, and for which we were indebted altogether to Peter's ingenuity and resolution, my companion finally succeeded, with the occasional aid of projections in the cliff in reaching the bottom without accident. It was some time before I could summon sufficient resolution to follow him, but I did at length attempt it. Peters had taken off his shirt before descending, and this, with my own, formed the rope necessary for the adventure. After throwing down the musket found in the chasm, 
I fastened this rope to the bushes and let myself down rapidly, striving by the vigor of my movements to banish the trepidation which I could overcome in no other manner. This answered sufficiently well for the first four or five steps, but presently I found my imagination growing terribly excited by thoughts of the vast depths yet to be descended, and the precarious nature of the pegs and soapstone holes which were my only support. It was in vain I endeavored to banish these reflections, and to keep my eyes steadily bent upon the flat surface of the cliff before me. The more earnestly I struggled not to think, the more intensely vivid became my conceptions, and the more horribly distinct. At length arrived that crisis of fancy, so fearful in all similar cases, the crisis in which we began to anticipate the feelings with which we shall fall, to picture to ourselves the sickness and dizziness in the last struggle, and the half-swoon and the final bitterness of the rushing and headlong descent. And now I found these fancies creating their own realities, and all imagined horrors crowding upon me in fact. I felt my knees strike violently together, while my fingers were gradually but certainly relaxing their grasp. There was a ringing in my ears, and I said, This is my knell of death. And now I was consumed with the irrepressible desire of looking below. I could not, I would not, confine my glances to the cliff, and with a wild, indefinable emotion, half of horror, half of relieved oppression, I threw my vision far down into the abyss. For one moment my fingers clutched convulsively upon their hold, while with the movement the faintest possible idea of Ultimate escape wandered like a shadow through my mind, and the next my whole soul was pervaded with longing to fall, a desire, a yearning, a passion utterly uncontrollable. I let go at once my grasp upon the peg, and turning half round from the precipice, remained tottering for an instant against its naked face. But now there came a spinning of the brain, a shrill-sounding and phantom voice screened within my ears. A dusky, fiendish, and filmy figure stood immediately beneath me, and sighing, I sunk down with a bursting heart and plunged within its arms. I had swooned, and Peters had caught me as I fell. He had observed my proceedings from his station at the bottom of the cliff, and perceiving my imminent danger, had endeavored to inspire me with courage by every suggestion he could devise, although my confusion of mind had been so great as to prevent my hearing what he said or being conscious that he had even spoken to me at all. At length, seeing me totter, he hastened to ascend to my rescue, and arrived just in time for my preservation. Had I fallen with my full weight, the rope of linen would inevitably have snapped, and I should have been precipitated into the abyss. As it was, he contrived to let me down gently, so as to remain suspended without danger until animation returned. This was in about fifteen minutes. On recovery, my trepidation had entirely vanished. I felt a new being, and, with some little further aid from my companion, reached the bottom also in safety. We now found ourselves not far from the ravine which had proved the tomb of our friends, and to the southward of the spot where the hill had fallen. The place was one of singular wildness, and its aspect brought to my mind the descriptions given by travelers of those dreary regions marking the site of degraded Babylon not to speak of the ruins of the disrupted cliff which formed a chaotic barrier in the vista, to the northward. The surface of the ground in every other direction was strewn with huge tumuli, apparently the wreck of some gigantic structures of art, although, in detail, no semblance of art could be detected. Scoria were abundant, and large shapeless blocks of the black granite intermingled with others of marl, 
and both granulated with metal. Of vegetation, there were no traces whatsoever throughout the whole of the desolate area within sight. Several immense scorpions were seen, and various reptiles not elsewhere to be found in the high latitudes. As food was our most immediate object, we resolved to make our way to the seacoast, distant not more than half a mile, with a view of catching turtle, several of which we had observed from our place of concealment on the hill. We had proceeded some hundred yards, threading our route cautiously between the huge rocks and tumuli, when upon turning a corner, five savages sprung upon us from a small cavern, felling Peters to the ground with a blow from a club. As he fell, the whole party rushed upon him to secure their victim, leaving me time to recover from my astonishment. I still had the musket, but the barrel had received so much injury in being thrown from the precipice that I cast it aside as useless, preferring to trust my pistols, which had been carefully preserved in order. With these I advanced upon the assailants, firing one after the other in quick succession. Two savages fell, and one, who was in the act of thrusting a spear into Peters, sprung to his feet without accomplishing his purpose. My companion being thus released, we had no further difficulty. He had his pistols also, but prudently declined using them, confiding in his great personal strength, which far exceeded that of any person I have ever known. Seizing a club from one of the savages who had fallen, he dashed out the brains of the three who remained, killing each instantaneously with a single blow of the weapon, and leaving us completely masters of the field. So rapidly bad these events passed that we could scarcely believe in their reality, and were standing over the bodies of the dead in a species of stupid contemplation when we were brought to recollection by the sound of shouts in the distance. It was clear that the savages had been alarmed by the firing, and that we had little chance of avoiding discovery. To regain the cliff, it would be necessary to proceed in the direction of the shouts, and even should we succeed in arriving at its base, we should never be able to ascend it without being seen. Our situation was one of the greatest peril, and we were hesitating in which path to commence a flight. When one of the savages whom I had shot, had supposed dead, sprang briskly to his feet and attempted to make his escape. We overtook him, however, before he had advanced many paces, and were about to put him to death. When Peter suggested that we might derive some benefit from forcing him to accompany us in our attempt to escape, we therefore dragged him with us, making him understand that we would shoot him if he offered resistance. In a few minutes he was perfectly submissive, and ran by our sides as we pushed in among the rocks, making for the seashore. So far, the irregularities of the ground we had been traversing hid the sea, except at intervals from our sight, and when we first had it fairly in view, it was perhaps two hundred yards distant. As we emerged into the open beach, we saw, to our great dismay, an immense crowd of the natives pouring from the village, and from all visible quarters of the island, making towards us with gesticulations of extreme fury, and howling like wild beasts. We were upon the point of turning upon our steps, and trying to secure a retreat among the fastnesses of the rougher ground, when I discovered the bows of two canoes projecting from behind a large rock, which ran out into the water. Toward these we now ran with all speed, and reaching them, found them unguarded and without any other freight than three of the large Galapago turtles and the usual supply of paddles for sixty rowers. We instantly took possession of one of them, and forcing our captive on board, pushed out to sea with all the strength we could command. 
We had not made, however, more than fifty yards from the shore before we became sufficiently calm to perceive the great oversight of which we had been guilty in leaving the other canoe in the power of the savages, who by this time were not more than twice as far from the beach as ourselves, and were rapidly advancing to the pursuit. No time was now to be lost. Our hope was, at best, a forlorn one, but we had none other. It was very doubtful whether, with the utmost exertion, we could get back in time to anticipate them in taking possession of the canoe, but yet there was a chance that we could. We might save ourselves if we succeeded. While not to make the attempt was to resign ourselves to inevitable butchery. The canoe was modeled with the bow and stern alike, and in place of turning it around, we merely changed our position in paddling. As soon as the savages perceived this, they redoubled their yells as well as their speed, and approached with inconceivable rapidity. We pulled, however, with all the energy of desperation, and arrived at the contested point before more than one of the natives had attained it. This man paid dearly for his superior agility, Peters shooting him through the head with a pistol as he approached the shore. The foremost among the rest of the party were probably some twenty or thirty paces distant as we seized upon the canoe. We at first endeavored to pull her into the deep water, beyond the reach of the savages, but finding her too firmly aground, and there being no time to spare, Peters, with one or two heavy strokes from the butt of the musket, succeeded in dashing out a large portion of the bow and of one side. We then pushed off. Two of the natives by this time had got hold of our boat, obstinately refused to let go, until we were forced to dispatch them with our knives. We were now clear off, and making great way out to sea. The main body of the savages, upon reaching the broken canoe, set up the most tremendous yell of rage and disappointment conceivable. In truth, from everything I could see of these wretches, they appeared to be the most wicked, hypocritical, vindictive, bloodthirsty, and altogether fiendish race of men upon the face of the globe. It is clear we should have had no mercy had we fallen into their hands. They made a mad attempt at following us in the fractured canoe, but finding it useless, again vented their rage in a series of hideous vociferations, and rushed up into the hills. We were thus relieved from immediate danger, but our situation was still sufficiently gloomy. We knew that four canoes of the kind we had were at one time in the possession of the savages, and were not aware of the fact, afterward ascertained from our captive, that two of these had been blown to pieces in the explosion of the Jane Guy. We calculated, therefore, upon being yet pursued. As soon as our enemies could get round to the bay, distant about three miles, where the boats were usually laid up. Fearing this, we made every exertion to leave the island behind us, and went rapidly through the water, forcing the prisoner to take a paddle. In about half an hour, when we had gained probably five or six miles to the southward, a large fleet of flat-bottomed canoes or rafts were seen to emerge from the bay evidently with the design of pursuit. Presently they put back, despairing to overtake us. End of section 24. Recording by Lorley. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 25. We now found ourselves in the wide and desolate Antarctic Ocean in a latitude exceeding eighty-four degrees, in a frail canoe, and with no provision but the three turtles. The long polar winter, too, could not be considered as far distant, and it became necessary that we should deliberate well upon the course to be pursued. 
There were six or seven islands in sight, belonging to the same group, and distant from each other about five or six leagues. But upon neither of these had we any intention to venture. In coming from the northward in the Jane Guy, we had been gradually leaving behind us the severest regions of ice. This, however, little it may be in accordance with the generally received notions respecting the Antarctic, was a fact experience would not permit us to deny. To attempt, therefore, getting back would be folly, especially at so late a period of the season. Only one course seemed to be left open for hope. We resolved to steer boldly to the southward, where there was at least a probability of discovering other lands, and more than a probability of finding a still milder climate. So far we had found the Antarctic, like the Arctic Ocean, peculiarly free from violent storms or immoderately rough water. But our canoe was at best a frail structure, although large, and we set busily to work with a view of rendering her as safe as the limited means in our possession would admit. The body of the boat was of no better material than bark, the bark of a tree unknown. The ribs were of a tough osier, well adapted to the purpose for which it was used. We had fifty feet room from stem to stern, from four to six in breadth, and in depth throughout four feet and a half. The boats thus differing vastly in shape from those of any other inhabitants of the southern ocean with whom civilized nations are acquainted. We never did believe them the workmanship of the ignorant islanders who owned them, and some days after this period discovered by questioning our captive that they were in fact made by the natives of a group to the southwest of the country where we found them, having fallen accidentally into the hands of our barbarians. What we could do for the security of our boat was very little indeed. Several wide rents were discovered near both ends, and this we contrived to patch up with pieces of woolen jacket. With the help of the superfluous paddles, of which there were a great many, we erected a kind of framework about the bow so as to break the force of any seas which might threaten to fill us in that quarter. We also set up two paddle blades for masts, placing them opposite each other, one by each gunwale, thus saving the necessity of a yard. To these masts we attached a sail made of our shirts, doing this with some difficulty, as here we could get no assistance from our prisoner whatever, although he had been willing enough to labor in all the other operations. The sight of the linen seemed to affect him in a very singular manner. He could not be prevailed upon to touch it or go near it, shuddering when we attempted to force him and shrieking out, Tekalili. Having completed our arrangements in regard to the security of the canoe, we now set sail to the south-southeast for the present, with a view of weathering the most southerly of the group in sight. This being done, we turned the bow full to the southward. The weather could by no means be considered disagreeable. We had a prevailing and very gentle wind from the northward, a smooth sea, and continual daylight. No ice, whatever, was to be seen, nor did I ever see one particle of this after leaving the parallel of Bennett's Islet. Indeed, the temperature of the water was here far too warm for its existence in any quantity. Having killed the largest of our tortoises, and obtained from him not only food, but a copious supply of water, we continued on our course, without any incident or moment, for perhaps seven or eight days, during which period we must have proceeded a vast distance to the southward, as the wind blew constantly with us 
and a very strong current set continually in the direction we were pursuing. March 1st. Many unusual phenomena now indicated that we were entering upon a region of novelty and wonder. A high range of light gray vapor appeared constantly in the southern horizon, flaring up occasionally in lofty streaks, now darting from east to west, now from west to east, and again presenting a level and uniform summit, in short, having all the wild variations of the aurora borealis. The average height of this vapor, as apparent from our station, was about 25 degrees. The temperature of the sea seemed to be increasing momentarily, and there was a very perceptible alteration in its color. March 2nd. Today, by repeated questioning of our captive, we came to the knowledge of many particulars in regard to the island of the massacre, its inhabitants and customs, but with these how can I now detain the reader? I may say, however, that we learned there were eight islands in the group, that they were governed by a common king named Salomon, or Solomon, who resided in one of the smallest of the islands, that the black skins forming the dress of the warriors came from an animal of huge size to be found only in a valley near the court of the king, that the inhabitants of the group fabricated no other boats than the flat-bottom rafts, the four canoes being all of the kind in their possession, and these having been obtained by mere accident from some large island in the southwest, that his own name was Nunu, that he had no knowledge of Bennett's Islet, and that the appellation of the island he had left was Salal. The commencement of the words Solomon and Salal was given with a prolonged hissing sound, which we found it impossible to imitate even after repeated endeavors, and which was precisely the same with the note of the black bittern we had eaten upon the summit of the hill. March 3rd. The heat of the water was now truly remarkable, and in color was undergoing a rapid change, being no longer transparent, but of a milky consistency and hue. In our immediate vicinity it was usually smooth, never so rough as to endanger the canoe, but we were frequently surprised at perceiving to our right and left, at different distances, sudden and extensive agitations of the surface. These, we at length noticed, were always preceded by wild flickerings in the region of vapor to the southward. March 4th. Today, with a view of widening our sail, the breeze from the northward, dying away perceptibly, I took from my coat pocket a white handkerchief. Nunu was seated at my elbow, and the linen accidentally flaring in his face. He became violently affected with convulsions. These were succeeded by drowsiness and stupor, and low murmurings of Tekalili, Tekalili. March 5th. The wind had entirely ceased, but it was evident that we were still hurrying on to the southward under the influence of a powerful current, and now indeed it would seem reasonable that we should experience some alarm at the turn events were taking, but we felt none. The continence of Peters indicating nothing of this nature, although it wore at times an expression I could not fathom. The polar winter appeared to be coming on, but coming without its terrors. I felt a numbness of body and mind, a dreaminess of sensation, but this was all. March 6th. The gray vapor had now arisen many more degrees above the horizon, and was gradually losing its grayness of tint. The heat of the water was extreme even unpleasant to the touch. 
and its milky hue was more evident than ever. Today a violent agitation of the water occurred very close to the canoe. It was attended as usual with a wild flaring up of the vapor at its summit, and a momentary division at its base. A fine white powder, resembling ashes, but certainly not such, fell over the canoe and over a large surface of the water, as the flickering died away among the vapor and the commotion subsided in the sea. Nunu now threw himself on his face in the bottom of the boat, and no persuasions could induce him to arise. March 7th. This day we questioned Nunu concerning the motives of his countrymen in destroying our companions, but he appeared to be too utterly overcome by terror to afford us any rational reply. He still obstinately lay in the bottom of the boat, and upon reiterating the questions as to the motive, made use only of idiotic gesticulations such as raising with his forefinger the upper lip and displaying the teeth which lay beneath it. These were black. We had never before seen the teeth of an inhabitant of Tsalal. March 8th. Today there floated by us one of the white animals whose appearance on the beach at Tsalal had occasioned so wild a commotion among the savages. I would have picked it up, but there came over me a sudden listlessness, and I forbore. The heat of the water still increased, and the hand could no longer be endured within it. Peters spoke little, and I knew not what to think of his apathy. Nunu breathed, and nothing more. March 9th, the whole ashy material fell now continually around us and in vast quantities. The range of vapor to the southward had arisen prodigiously in the horizon and began to assume more distinctness of form. I can liken it to nothing but a limitless cataract rolling silently into the sea from some immense and far distant rampart in the heaven. The gigantic curtain ranged along the whole extent of the southern horizon. It emitted no sound. March 21st. A sullen darkness now hovered above us, but from out the milky depths of the ocean a luminous glare arose and stole up along the bulwarks of the boat. We were nearly overwhelmed by the white ashy shower which settled upon us and upon the canoe, but melted into the water as it fell. The summit of the cataract was utterly lost in the dimness and the distance. Yet we were evidently approaching it with a hideous velocity. At intervals there were visible in it wide, yawning, but momentary rents, and from out these rents, within which was a chaos of flitting and indistinct images, there came rushing and mighty but soundless winds, tearing up the enkindled ocean in their course. March 22nd the darkness had materially increased, relieved only by the glare of the water thrown back from the white curtain before us. Many gigantic and pallidly white birds flew continuously now from beyond the veil, and their scream was the eternal Tekalili as they retreated from our vision. Hereupon Nunu stirred in the bottom of the boat, but upon touching him we found his spirit departed and now we rushed into the embraces of the cataract, where a chasm threw itself open to receive us. But there arose in our pathway a shrouded human figure, very far larger in its proportions than any dweller among men, and the hue of the skin of the figure was of the perfect whiteness of the snow. Note. The circumstances connected with the late sudden and distressing death of Mr. Pym 
are already well known to the public through the medium of the daily press. It is feared that the few remaining chapters which were to have completed his narrative, and which were retained by him while the above were in type, for the purpose of revision, have been irrecoverably lost through the accident by which he perished himself. This, however, may prove not to be the case, and the papers, if ultimately found, will be given to the public. No means have been left untried to remedy the deficiency. The gentleman whose name is mentioned in the preface, and who from the statement there made, might be supposed able to fill the vacuum, has declined the task. This for satisfactory reasons connected with the general inaccuracy of the details afforded him and his disbelief in the entire truth of the latter portions of the narration. Peters, from whom some information might be expected, is still alive and a resident of Illinois, but cannot be met with at present. He may hereafter be found, and will no doubt afford material for a conclusion of Mr. Pym's account. The loss of two or three final chapters, for there were but two or three, is the more deeply to be regretted as it cannot be doubted they contain matter relative to the pole itself, or at least to regions in its very near proximity. And as to the statements of the author in relation to these regions may shortly be verified or contradicted by means of the governmental expedition now preparing for the Southern Ocean. On one point in the narrative some remarks may well be offered, and it would afford the writer of this appendix much pleasure if what he may here observe should have a tendency to throw credit in any degree upon the very singular pages now published. We allude to the chasms found in the island of Tsalal, and to the whole of the figures upon pages 245 to 47 of the printed edition. Note, no figures were included with this text. Mr. Pym has given the figures of the chasms without comment, and speaks decidedly of the indentures found at the extremity of the most easterly of these chasms as having but a fanciful resemblance to alphabetical characters, and in short as being positively not such. This assertion is made in a manner so simple and sustained by a species of demonstration so conclusive in other words, the fitting of the projections of the fragments found among the dust into the indentures upon the wall, that we are forced to believe the writer in earnest, and no reasonable reader should suppose otherwise. But as the facts in relation to all the figures are most singular, especially when taken in connection with statements made in the body of the narrative, it may be as well to say a word or two concerning them all, this too the more especially, as the facts in question have beyond doubt escaped the attention of Mr. Pope. Figure 1, then figure 2, figure 3, and figure 5, when conjoined with one another in the precise order which the chasms themselves presented, and when deprived of the small lateral branches or arches, which it will be remembered, served only as a means of communications between the main chambers, and were of totally distinct character, constitute an Ethiopian verbal root, the root to be shady whence all the inflections of shadow or darkness. In regard to the left or most northwardly of the indentures in figure 4, it is more than probable that the opinion of Peters was correct, and that the hieroglyphical appearance was really the work of art, and intended as the representation of a human form. The delineation is before the reader, and he may or may not perceive the resemblance suggested but the rest of the indentures afford strong confirmation of Peter's idea. The upper range is evidently the Arabic verbal root 
to be white, whence all the inflections of brilliancy and whiteness. The lower range is not so immediately perspicuous. The characters are somewhat broken and disjointed. Nevertheless, it cannot be doubted that in their perfect state they form the full Egyptian word, the region of the south. It should be observed that these interpretations confirm the opinion of Peters in regard to the most northwardly of the figures. The arm is outstretched toward the south. Conclusions such as these open a wide field for speculation and exciting conjecture. They should be regarded perhaps in connection with some of the most faintly detailed incidents of the narrative, although in no visible manner is this chain of connection complete. Tekalili was the cry of the affrighted natives of Tsalal upon discovering the carcass of the white animal picked up at sea. This also was the shuddering exclamatives of Tsalal upon discovering the carcass of the white materials in possession of Mr. Pym. This also was the shriek of the swift-flying white and gigantic birds which issued from the vapory white curtain of the south. Nothing white was to be found at Salal, and nothing otherwise in the subsequent voyage to the region beyond. It is not impossible that Salal, the appellation of the island of the chasms, may be found upon minute philological scrutiny to betray either some alliance with the chasms themselves, or some reference to the Ethiopian characters so mysteriously written in their windings. I have graven it within the hills, and my vengeance upon the dust within the rock. End of section 25